0: The Collective Whisper Podcast, with Simon K. I'd like to welcome J.P. McMahon. J.P. is a chef, restaurant owner, including a Michelin-star restaurant in Galway City. He has also published books, is a columnist for the Irish newspapers, and has organised a major food festival for Galway City. Okay, welcome to the show, J.P. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Where are you at the moment? Are you in Galway? You are? Yeah, I'm in Knocknacarra
1: in Galway. That's where I uh, Very where nice I at the moment. Yeah. Plenty of walking And, and what's
0: the weather like there? Ah, it's what's ah, the weather it's like? Kind of different. Got it. grey. It's a grey yeah. You. The weather has been kind of mixed, really. Recently, you've had snow and a few nice days and a lot of rain, as usual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like the only thing we can really do at the moment is a little bit of bacon and then uh, and go for walks. So uh, I mean, the days that it's raining, it's uh, it's it's hard. It it, it, it you lose your only activity.
0: Yeah. And at the moment, like the lockdown there, is it three kilometres or five kilometres? How far can you go? It's out? Five kilometres. So uh, like the restaurants are about, it's yeah, five. the
1: restaurants are about about seven kilometres away from, from here. So I can drive down to the restaurants uh, like they're all closed at the moment. But we, we were doing a few bits and pieces at
0: the moment. So right. And, and uh, as you know, all the restaurants are closed, have they given you any indication of when you might be able to open them again or? It's all.
1: It's still very, very vague. I mean, we thought March, April, and, and now it looks like May, June. I mean, I'm fingers crossed. It it'll the latest will be um will be June, uh, because if it, if it goes on into July, August, September, that might be the end of the the season. So I'm I'm fingers crossed for June for indoor dining.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I I heard yesterday they were saying obviously some of the pubs might be closed till August. That's a long time, isn't it? absolutely and i i it's
1: uh it's it's a difficult one but um like i still think we could be doing more at our borders i mean we're we're catching up now slightly but like uh i think we we could have done uh we could have done more in the borders last year and and tried to uh quarantine and uh, like do what australia and new zealand have done and i mean they've effectively took about a hundred days or so to to uh to get rid of covid but if, if we're closed till june in the restaurants it'll be 180 days for us and i don't think we'll be any be- in
0: any better position yeah yeah it is i mean that's it's quite shocking you know because obviously with the first lockdown there there was a lot of pubs and restaurants even that didn't open their doors again and it's quite sad when you see that but you know and and you know who's to blame? I mean, the landlords look for their money for the rent, and the the restaurants aren't making any money, and the government are saying it's for health regulations, but it just kind of gets out of control, and those businesses will never open again, probably some of them.
1: Yeah, there's a few a few pubs um, and uh, places in Galway have already closed. I mean, smaller pubs that uh, one beside beside near that just wouldn't have been able to even do two meter social distancing, so. That that has closed, and I even start retail has closed as well, bookshops and stuff, because again, uh, it's it's difficult. I mean, there are there are grand schemes at the moment, but it's kind of effectively just keeping you in in hibernation. And I think when they when they end, I think there'll be a, de- a deluge of places closing because. Um, I'd be worried that, like, the customers won't. We won't have international travel, um, uh, and I think also people's habits will have changed. So if people haven't been in pubs for for up to two years, um, or a year and a half, anyway, uh, I'm sure the pubs are going to find it very, very hard to to get customers back and under new conditions and and to try and make a, a living out of possibly where you can do less people. You know.
0: Yeah, I, I was talking to my wife the other night, and I was saying that to her that that's one thing that I think is going to happen, that people's habits will change because, you know, now obviously people are at home and then they're maybe not drinking as much or eating out as much. And then they're they're um, thinking, oh, I'll get healthier and I'll change my ways and change my habits. And the problem is that, you know, after six months or a year of this kind of behavior, maybe people won't go back to the bars, like you said. And the thing is, I think it'll affect all walks of life, really. You know, we'll become more reclusive in our homes and doing stuff virtually. I think so. And I think uh, and like I I think I think restaurants hopefully
1: should be okay, but uh, and pubs that serve food. But I would be worried about pubs that that don't serve food because I think that uh, they have a different, I suppose, demographic and that. And it's uh, uh, we'll see. I mean, nightclubs as well. Are, I don't know when they're going to reopen uh, at all. And then I think mm. I think retail as well. I think retail will find it hard. I mean, most of the most of the shopping for the last year has been online other than the supermarket. And even people have stopped going to the supermarket. So a lot of that will continue. And so people will. um, um uh, people, people, people may not, may not, may not go back, and uh, you can see the likes of Amazon and, and and places are are doing well out of the pandemic. So it, it is, it is hard, and you need you need a balance between the big the big players and the small players.
0: Yeah, it is. It's it's going to be really difficult. And you know, someone was saying to me the other day. They said, "Oh, you know, it's not that you know. Now, obviously, we could be going into a recession, and it could affect a lot of countries." But the thing is, people have more money for spending on the likes of Amazon and online shopping because they're spending less in the bars and maybe shopping for clothes and less on restaurants and everything. So then they're looking elsewhere to spend that money.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there's more savings that, than ever before. I, I think I saw that a were going to start charging like, negative interest which is crazy started charging interest where people have too much money in their account uh because they're supposed wow. yeah and i i didn't even know they were allowed to do that i thought like you could just like why would they charge you interest to because they have your money already so um Uh, But yes, the difficulty is, is that it's uh, it's uh, like you have effectively have 50 percent of the economy functioning as normal. Like if you have tech or like a lot of it is just I mean, is is uh, is is uh, is moving normally. And I know we're all in lockdown, but it it is a difficult one when you say that, like, we're all in this together. Like, I mean, certain uh supermarkets or online companies will come out with a lot more cash flow and a lot more yeah a lot more strength uh and the like retail hospitality tourism hotels all of those things are are, are going to have yes yeah, it's, it's going to be very very hard to
0: start again you know you're correct in saying that You know, are we in this all together? Because some people will surely benefit from this. And you even see companies starting up now with masks and every sort of thing. And they're going to benefit more because they're catering for the COVID pandemic. But other businesses, you know, that are not tech savvy and not virtual and, you know, you have to go in and physically sit down and eat or drink there, those businesses are going to suffer. So it's a shame, really, you know, and, you know, when you look at Ireland in the 80s and you had a lot of these ghost towns with empty pubs and we're kind of going to go back to that a little bit because you're going to have really small towns with nothing happening in them.
1: Yeah, and I think I think the. That's definitely in in the sense of being together in this. I think the rural will be affected much more. I think that the, the, the major cities like Dublin, Cork and Galway, maybe Limerick as well, I think they'll be all right. Uh, but I think that the likes of the smaller cities or smaller towns uh, where someone might have owned a pub who was 60 or 65 and, and has been closed for a year and a half and might go, do you know what? I, I, I just, I think that's me. Like, uh, I can't, and I think that will happen with the, uh, with the uh, people who have been in business longer. And I think that, uh, I mean, yeah. even we've been in business nearly 15 years and our Michelin star restaurant hasn't been open now for, um, for a year. It, it might. If we miss the season, that means we we, if we don't open we can't open it in September. We can open it in June, but like the season ends in November. So like if we miss a second year, I don't know, like we're all we're talking about it going, look, is is it worthwhile waiting for a third year to reopen? Will we just let it go? I mean, we're paying rent on an empty premises for for a year Mm. now. It's they're, they're hard questions. And I suppose we don't have any answers at the moment.
0: Yeah, and uh, just actually there because I, I see. Congrats again! You you retained your Michelin star, so well done on that. And uh, but is is that was that a different thing this year? Because obviously, if restaurants are closed, do they go about the Michelin star in a different way? How does how does that happen?
1: Um, well, they they had started. Um, they, I think they started uh, going to places for the guide in in twenty nineteen. So they probably. Um, they probably went went to quite a few quite a few places, and I'm sure they gave some the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I know they were into tartar and cava in in uh, December, so they were over in December before before we went into uh, closed again. So, look, uh, I had talked to them and said, look, we'll be reopening in March and that, and I, I suppose when where uh, they, they had to they had to I suppose give um, some places the benefit of the doubt, but look, like, it's it's mm. you, I suppose if. If places co- close for another year, it will be hard for them to say, look, you've been closed two years now and we haven't been in to inspect you. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a different story. But with uh, our, our our aim is to open in June. We're doing online classes at the moment uh, just to just to keep things ticking over. So, um, uh, again, hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll um,
0: it'll be enough to keep us going. Great, that's brilliant. So let's let's go back a little bit. Um, your to your early life. You were you are from Clondalkin, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I was born. I was born in Clondalkin, and uh, I think two or three years, uh, maybe maybe four years there, and then we moved to to Kill for a year or so in in Kildare, and then and then we ended up in Maynooth. Um, the so we moved we moved into I think in eighty two or eighty eighty three, um. So um, it's uh. Yeah, it was, I, so most most of my my childhood was spent was spent in Maynooth, Even though I, I, I um I I disagree with the fact when people say I'm from Kildare. I say I'm, i that's I, I go I I go with the born from. I was like I was born in Dublin. I don't care. And they were like, no, no, you grew up in Kildare. You're from Kildare. And I was like, I'm not from Kildare. I'm from Dublin. And I still have this argument with people. They go, it's where did you go to primary school? And I
0: go, it's Kildare. And they go, that's where you're from. And I go, no. So. Uh, that that could be like I I lived in Kildare. My, my family lived in Kildare for ten years in in a place called Allen Wood. It was near Nace. I don't know if you know it, a small town. And um, because my okay. father was originally a Carlo man, and my mother was from Galway, so he was doing a lot of work painting, decorating with the corporations. And we lived in in Allen Wood in Kildare for ten years. So it's like that when people say to me, "Where are you from?" and I'm like, "Well, Galway, Kildare, everywhere." <laughs>
1: Yeah 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 yeah. And um yeah so and I I suppose for me um I suppose uh being interested in in literature and um and and stuff like that i'm a big fan of samuel beckett and james joyce and that so my heart is in dublin i i I don't know if there's any i'm not i'm not even really into horse racing or whatever else Kildare has so uh i, I never uh I, I never i mean i loved maynooth it's a great university town and my brother one brother still lives there and one brother lives in lucan and, and ironically the rest of the rest of the family followed me to galway so there's uh, three brothers, one sister, and uh, my two parents now are in Galway. Brilliant. And I, were your parents originally from Clondalkin as well? No, they were. My father was from Stalorgan, and my mum was from Bray. But my father's father was a builder, and so he built m- uh, many of the houses in Clondalkin in the seventies, and I think that's why we ended oh, up in, in Clondalkin. So he built a lot of. Yeah, he was
0: a builder, so he built a lot of the houses around Dublin. Really cool. All right, that's great. And so so you left Clondocan and you went to school in 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 Kill or where in
1: no in, in I went to school in Kildare. Um I think I just went to play school in Kill I've a few memories of of that. But yeah. Yeah, most most of my memories start start in
0: in, um, in Maynooth. And what like for you what was Maynooth like growing up because obviously, you know, um university town and it's also like the the priests still train there, don't they? So there was a mixed yeah. kind of bag of students there.
1: Yeah, my my father taught in the university. Um, my father's a, a, a physicist, so he he was a, or a scientist. So he he taught there, uh, but he didn't teach initially there. Um, he, we, it wasn't the reason why we moved there, but eventually. He, he took a job there, and and then he worked there until until he until he retired. So yeah, I mean, uh, growing up, I mean, I suppose I didn't notice so much the university town until I was probably fifteen or sixteen, and then you start to to, to see the kind of hustle and bustle, and uh, and certainly, um, a lot of um, I've met a lot of friends through the through the university and a lot of the, uh, the students, and actually, my 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 wife um studied there as well, so that's where 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 we met. Uh, But it was, it was a nice, it was, it was very small when, I think when we moved to Manute there was four estates, like it was quite small. And now Manute is gigantic. It's, it's just, it's nearly connected to like Lucan and Leakslip and, uh Selbridge. like uh, this it's just how uh how so it's quite it's quite large now um but I it was a, it was a nice place to to grow up it was still quite a small town when uh when we moved there and I remember them doing the like, kind of modernizing the the roads in the the early 90s uh like because the roads were still that that kind of uh, old Irish road uh, which sometimes like actually ironically sometimes you miss and you're going why did i miss that because it was a terrible road and a terrible path the great secondary roads yeah yeah <laughs> and now they're all fancy like with bicycle lanes and all that and uh it's it's funny when i go down it's um like it's uh but it is like and ironically the like it, it is um it's it, the town is thriving like, i mean my brother runs a restaurant there and uh, and they're busier than us in galway and like, so it has it has a a great, I suppose, population around it, do you know, in terms of Luke and slip Selbridge. A lot of people go to Maynooth on the weekends yeah.
0: and that. So it's still it's still um, it, it's still it's still it's still a great town. Yeah. And so in like when you were as a, a teenager there, how did you keep yourself entertained? Like, did you have hobbies or what did you do to kind of pass the while?
1: I was actually talking to, I think I was talking to my daughters recently about this because, I mean, they're on, they have phones they are on TikTok and, and they're like, what do we do? And I think we just walked <laughs> around the estate. I think, I think that's all we did, you know, and you walked around just different estates, you hung around outside Extra Vision, you know, you, like there wasn't, uh, I don't think there was a whole lot to do. I mean, we, uh, i um, certainly like, uh, as I, in my mid-teens, I might have like joined a band and played a bit of guitar and. And stuff like that, but I think initially it was. um I think also as well the differences, which again, I mean, we're very. I suppose. um I suppose everyone is much more careful with their children now, in the sense that they don't just let them outside and come back at nine o'clock. But. Yeah. I was like, "What? Why was like? What do we do? I think we just went out until it got dark, and then we came back in again. Yeah. You can't go out in the dark. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, why is the dark any more dangerous than the light but uh
0: the it's it's what's in the dark that's dangerous
1: <laughs> i think it was just again smaller i think we were we were a lot smaller as a as a as a country and perhaps not as um uh not as as developed i think uh, in terms of uh in ter- i suppose not as not as developed in terms of worrying about things you know and i think it was just uh, kids went out and played and um and then came back in played football a lot. That's actually I forgot. We played football a lot. I think actually from when the boom in 1990 happened in Ireland, I think everyone, everyone who grew up in that was uh, was uh, wanted to be a footballer. I actually trained as a referee. Uh, because, really? Uh, yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't the best footballer. I was all right in goals. But so I I trained as a as a as, a, as an FAI referee, I think, when I was 17. And I did it for three, maybe three years. Uh, it could have been earlier. It could have been fifteen or sixteen. But I remember I've been. I was the youngest. I was the youngest one there uh, doing the doing the exam. And I I used to referee games in the Phoenix Park, um, and the lads I'd be refereeing would be would be much older than me. So it was a, it was a, it was a challenge to uh to to referee them. But I I think you got a pound a player. And so if you did a game, you got
0: um, like £22. So it was like... all oh, right. Well, But you you kind of knew the set rate though, didn't you? You knew it's probably 22 And, and if the game was cancelled,
1: I think you got 17 if it was raining or something. So I used to get the bus out to the Phoenix Park on Sunday morning. And then, and then sometimes if you referee two games, you'd come back with
0: £44. And that was like a lot of money. Oh, right. And would they would deduct money if you sent anyone off? <laughs> <laughs> Remember the first
1: season, I didn't, because it was I suppose it was intimidating. And I remember I was refereeing in Crumlin, and uh, I sent um, I sent their striker off. Oh my god, I thought I was going to get lynched by the crowd. Um, and uh, I think it was the second yellow card, or um, but anyway, it was a it, it 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 was a justifiable sending off, but he, they weren't.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, it's. It's a hard job, referee. And I, I was talking recently to a woman who's a referee here in in Madrid. I'm living in Madrid, and uh, she she gave it up because she was refereeing kids' games and teenagers, you know. And she said the parents obviously were worse than the kids sometimes. So she said the abuse she used to receive after the game, walking to her car. So she said she just had enough of it, you know. So it's not an easy job.
1: No, no, and I like. I, thankfully, I wasn't on the the tail end of too much abuse. But at I, 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 a few moments, I remember I remember turning around and this, this one player had a lump of muck in his hand and he was about to belt another player. And he hadn't done it. And he just looked at me and he dropped the muck. And I was like, I was just like, listen, what do I do?
0: <laughs> this is a difficult
1: situation. I sent off a guy and then I realised 15 minutes later he was back on the pitch. And I... because. <laughs> Oh my God! It was so once or twice it was it got a bit hairy, but the, the, I think the 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 most difficult time was when I when I was in Crumlin because I think actually the Crumlin I had to be picked up from because the game had been moved and I think that the Crumlin football players had to drop me back to the bus stop after I sent off their striker. Yeah, go on, sorry. I I think it was in Madrid where the 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 referee was chased off the pitch by the crowd and he had to scale a fence. I, this is good for years ago, and uh, but yeah, but I suppose the Spanish Italians are
0: are crazy, uh, when it oh they're they're mad. I, I I remember there was um there was an Atletico Madrid player a few years ago and he. He, he was black and he was being racially abused by the Atletico Madrid fans, his own fans, because he missed a goal or an opportunity to score. And, you know, they were calling him all kinds of names and they were his own fans. Imagine, it's crazy. So sometimes there's a certain element that are the ultras that are too passionate about it. And, you know, it's one thing turning on your own or the opposite team, but on your own team is pretty crazy. So the referees are mixed up in the middle of this too. You were doing refereeing. So, what other jobs? I, I was reading there a little about you. You worked. You started off kind of chefing and cooking in a, an Italian restaurant. Was that one of your first jobs, or what? Where, what was your first job? How did you start off?
1: I think my very first job was, I think, delivering the newspaper. I think, and I actually hated that. I got dropping the liffy champion around to to houses. But I think when I was fifteen, I, I got into cooking. I, I had I had done home economics in school cause, because I had asthma. And you could only do home economics or woodwork, so I um, I couldn't do woodwork, so um I think I was one of a few lads doing maybe th- maybe one of three lads doing home economics, and uh, I just got in, got, got the kind of cook and bug, and I I think the summer, um the summer after the junior cert, um I I think I started working. And I I worked actually the the very first cooking job was actually in the kitchens in in the college in Maynooth. Um, my my father got me a job in there for the summer, so I worked in there. And then I think in the August September, I I started in the the Italian restaurant. And I I almost left school at that stage because I I ironically I wasn't very interested in school back then, and I actually applied to a load of of a load of um um uh restaurants and hotels and to you could yeah back then you could do the cert course and you could um you could you could leave school at fifteen or sixteen and so I did that um I I think I took I think I I took a month off school in September. I did and then and then i went back in october and i i i uh i did i did i i did the leave in then but that, i suppose that was the first the first time i had started i had started cooking and got, and got interested in cooking
0: cool yeah and uh, you know i remember obviously being in school and you know they give you choices woodwork and depend- i was in the christian brothers in June, and the the i don't know if we had a choice for home economics but i you know in some schools to be boys schools and girls schools but the thing about it was we, Sometimes as well, when some boys would do home economics, they would, you'd have other boys and, oh, you're cooking and you're not doing the woodwork. Did you ever face that? Because obviously cooking became a cooler thing as, as time went on. Absolutely. And uh the, the irony is uh,
1: like they literally say like oh you you're you're uh, there must be you must be because 'cause you're doing Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and that is like to say that now people have been going like people might say, I oh, sure why <laughs> do people think that? But it was like oh you're doing sewing and cooking and uh woodwork you can't do woodwork or, or uh or metal work. So um and there was just three of it three guys, uh I think remember myself John Swan and Don O'Neill. I still remember that. That's how few lads were in. I, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really liked it, and it was one of the. Uh, th- I did that in art, and were probably the the two subjects that I that I enjoyed um, in for my leaving. I mean, I, I was an absolute um, delinquent in in um, in after junior between junior start and leaving cert. I hope my children don't turn out like me during that period of time. <laughs> um,
0: don't tell them about it
1: <laughs> i think i think i got suspended a few times and just for absolute tomfoolery and like just messing just i don't know what happened i i, I was quite i was quite enough up to junior cert and then i remember dying my hair once chilly red and i was in a uh and i got to school and then i was called the principal's office and i was sent home and said you're not coming back to school until that until that um until that uh, washes out um so I, I now actually my my uh, my twelve year old actually she's in the educate, educate together and she uh, she's dyed her hair and she's in sixth class and they're like wow oh, that's cool, so the the mm-hmm. the the change has has certainly um has certainly uh has certainly taken place but just uh, stuff like that so when I when I rem- when I left um school i think i only got 250 points on my leaving or something like that it was something scandalous and i remember actually the the teacher saying the first thing she said to me when she gave me the the piece of paper was like you didn't fail (laughs) i still i still remember her saying that um fair play to her i i yeah and ironically like uh she's passed away now but i i went i went back to college and i um I did uh, as a as a mature student and did English and art history and went I did a masters and I'm doing a PhD at the moment and so I um I always wanted to tell her that I was just this, I was just a late starter but uh, unfortunately I didn't get the chance but it is like uh, that's why I I'm, I'm very relaxed with the kids and in and, and they're academic development in the sense that I think people are people are very different and they they start at different stages. And I think I think uh, uh, sending kids to college when it's it's not necessary. And it's kind
0: of an early age when you consider like 18, you know, 19 going to college and you're kind of saying to people, okay, now you have to decide what you want to be. And, you know, there are people in their late 30s and 40s still trying to decide who they are and what they want to be. So it's really hard to ask teenagers and, you know, young adults. Okay, what do you, want to be? do you want to be? Do you want to be an academic? Do you want to work in trades? Uh, do you want to be a scientist? Because people, some, they don't know, but someone's steering them in a direction. And it's a bit unfair sometimes, and it's hard. It's a lot of pressure.
1: No, absolutely. I still say to people, I still don't know what I want to be you know what yeah. they say well it's, they say it's a bit late for that now uh but no it's um i i think i think now i think we, we we we're much more open and i think you can realize that whether you're 40 or 50 or even 60 and you want to start another career um i think absolutely go for it i mean my my aunt has uh she she was an accountant and then her whole life and she retired i think she's in her late 60s now and then she she did an open university with art history and then She's doing a master's now. And I, I think we have a lot more opportunity now. And I think people will have three or four careers definitely by the time my uh, my kids are, are are going to college. So it's 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 something that uh, I think the parents should keep an open mind about. And if their kids want to go straight to work, I think it's good because I think you have a lot of excess energy when you're 18 to 22, you know, and you need to there's no point spending thousands Sending um, kids to to college or I think my wife went and did like Greek and Roman and fucking geography or something. And then it was like, why did he even do that? Like spent doing that. And it's like, what a nightmare just because her uh, the parents wanted her to go to college and she had to pick something. And it was just those sounded like the most interesting subjects. I think
0: people, you know, obviously at the time, maybe people go, oh, I think I'd like that or I'd be into that. And then, but then they maybe realize what it entails and they're like, okay, I don't like this so much. Or there's too much pressure with exams and then they decide they want to be something else. And this is the thing I think a lot of uh, college for a lot of people is not so much what they're going to be, it's an awakening of what they don't want to be.
1: yeah yeah definitely and I actually i just rec- I i remember that when i left i actually was going to be uh i did a lot of running in my in my late teens and i i actually went i worked in a gym when just after i left uh just after my leaving shirt and so i was going to take a... Um, I can't remember the course. It was some 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 physical education course or some gym instructor course, and I just decided not not to go for it. Um. So it's funny how the different parts of your life and they and they come back now. I mean, having having worked in a in a, in a gym. I mean, it's twenty five years ago, but that aspect of of training and nutrition and it feeds into it feeds into the cooking. Um, and and I still it it gives you a broader I suppose a more broader way of of understanding things.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, for you when you were obviously in university notes and stuff, did you you know, did you take the time to travel like as in going places to work or was it mainly just travel for leisure when you were younger?
1: No, I I think we a little bit of travel. Um I actually to, a good few times to Spain. I mean, we both we both love Spain and that's why we opened I suppose that mm. the and I I definitely I definitely had um um many many trips to to barcelona and that in in my my late teens early early 20s we lived in edinburgh for a year uh both of us cooked there and uh, that was uh we went uh we went we moved to galway um uh, i moved to galway from from maynooth i think in ninety ninety eight ninety nine 99 and then um uh and then i started working in in a, in a pizzeria place called fat freddy's and flash Freddy's yeah and yeah and then we went to travel we went to edinburgh and then at that stage i had decided that i wanted to go back to college and i had always loved english like in my own way and um and so i decided i wanted to do english and art history so we i think art history you could only do it in dublin or cork so i applied for for um for both and uh um and i got cork and so um we moved down to Cork for I think three years, and um, my wife did a, She she's uh she did acting um a little bit and then she did a, a master's in directing. So, and I did the my degree. I actually took I took French as well for some crazy reason. I don't know what I was <laughs> thinking, but I I, I I I was all right in French. I mean, I wasn't great now for leaving, yeah. Should sure, this be just to be great? I'll just do about a one year of French in college, and it nearly killed me. I was getting. <laughs> uh getting um uh trying to get uh people to, to help me and um I think I got what did I get? I think I got fifty three percent, but I swear to god I bled uh that fifty three percent and I was just like when when I when I got to pick the subjects I was gonna drop going into second year I was like I'm dropping French. I was like <laughs> literally I because at this I remember the first French exam because it was negative marking. So if you forgot to put an accent over something. Oh was, yes and so the first exam I did I got twenty-seven percent. And I was like, Oh my god. And I got and they and by the time I'd finished they got fifty-three and they were like, geez, you should continue this. You're really good at it. And I was like, No. I said yeah. like, I said, as much as I love language and I I love Spanish as well. And I'm always I'm always uh uh learning bits and pieces of it. So I like languages, but just not in that kind of intense uh do I forget the accents or uh um, uh, in that in that kind of way.
0: Yeah, well, languages are a hard thing, are Because you know, I've been living here and with my family, and it's been for eight years. And you know, I speak Spanish, but the, for a lot of that time, I was teaching English. So, what people don't realise, if you spend your time at home in the family speaking English, and then you're working all the time speaking English, it's you don't pick up as much of the language as you'd like. I rectified that in later years here, but if you're anywhere, if it's French or Spanish or Greek, you have to live the language every day. Like my wife works in a school and she speaks Spanish a lot better than I do because she works at it every day. She's speaking to kids in Spanish. So it's one of these things. For me, you have to really live the language and it's hard. I mean, I did a Spanish course in NUIG and I thought, oh, yeah, I know a little. And when I came to Spain, it was like a slap in the face.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I spent a a bit of time in France as well in uh, my uh, early 20s and that and the same like when it was hard because you were hanging around with people, uh, with French people, their English was so good that most of the time they wouldn't bother speaking French to you. And so you end up being there, being there around them a month, and you realise I haven't got any better at this bloody language because yeah. other than going into the shops and buying things, like any time you're in a social situation, they'd go, "Okay, your French is shit. I'll just talk English." <laughs> and, and, <laughs> uh, and so it's, uh, and they and they'd want to practice their English, so they'd be like, "Yeah, of my time, wasting my time talking." Um. Uh, French dude, But I remember actually give it, we were exchanging grinds when I, uh, with, the, with a French guy and um, in, when I was in when the first year and they, it, my object was to learn more French and his object was to get rid of his French accent. Oh really? And I was like I don't know if I can help you with that because he's like I hate speaking English in a French accent. Languages
0: are really difficult. So let's, um, let's talk about like you said you came to Galway what was kind of the reasoning for coming to Galway or going to Galway?
1: Yeah, I think there was a there was a few friends uh, moving up there after after they finished college, but I think also I had been in Galway the previous year, and I suppose what attracted me to Galway was the I suppose the art scene. You know, it was a very like relaxed town. You had the arts festival. I remember. I remember. I think we moved up in uh, in in July, and the arts festival was in full swing. There was the film fla as well, and there was uh, it was just uh, it was it, it was a kind of uh, uh, the town was hopping, and it was it. It just seemed like a great place, and so decided to to uh to to live there um for a while. And I suppose eventually, even even going back to even moving to Cork and living in Edinburgh for a year, uh we we kept gravitating back towards back towards Galway.
0: Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. It's um it's a great city, Galway. I mean that's the thing about it is it's culturally, it's so like it's culturally happening all the time and you know and, and I think a lot of people now look back and say oh around the late 90s was amazing in Galway and there was so much happening and even you mentioned Fat Freddy's and there was all these great restaurants around and there was just a great scene and you know hopefully now this COVID won't kill a lot of that scene because it's culturally there's a lot going on isn't there?
1: Yeah I think so and definitely I think that the the late 90s in Galway were, were, were a great time and I think a lot of the, I think the Mockness and the arts festival, and, and uh, there was just a great, great vibe uh, around. And then you had bands, you had Pierce, uh, Pierce Stadium as well, where you had, I think Bob Dylan played, and I think Radiohead played in '96 or '97, and all, all that. So there was, there, there was, and, and and hopefully that will, that will remain. So I mean, I suppose Galway has matured, like for better and for worse. I mean, it has become more, I suppose, corporate in the sense of the larger it gets, and the fact that you get more kind of chains in so but I, I hope that it retains a sense of its uh um of its of its independence and that and, and like it's still home to like to, to some great restaurants. It has has two Michelin stars for I mean for a city of, of eighty thousand people it's um that that's quite an achievement. So I mean hopefully we with that that will keep happening, you know, and uh we we'll we'll keep moving towards towards uh towards that.
0: Yeah. So let's let's go like talk about the restaurants. You know, how did you you you, you mentioned you had been working in Fat Freddy's. So when did you kind of say, OK, I want to open my own restaurant and, you know, I have an idea. And I did. Was it a big struggle to try and start doing that?
1: Uh, like we always had it in the back of our mind. I mean, both of us worked in in uh, in hospitality. And even though we were doing other stuff, like I was doing um, uh, a Ph.D. in art history, I was teaching down in Cork once a week on a Tuesday I would drive down and uh, and then I was working in in fat on the weekend um and my my wife was I, I think she's working we working with her with her father the in in construction this was before before two thousand and eight um and we always had it in the back of our mind that we would open and we would open a restaurant and it just it just uh i suppose that the stars aligned i mean they, they say a lot of um a lot of times in in, in hospitality, or I suppose in many things that you need a little bit of luck. Um, of course, like you can have lots of talent and, uh, and that, um, but you, you need a bit of luck and, and a place came available and we signed the lease in 2007. This was before the crash. And again, it was probably our, our bad mortgage. I mean, we didn't buy a house during that period, but we signed a, a lease of a, like 125 grand with a personal guarantee and, um we we opened may 2008 and um yeah like it was it was hard i mean it was great to bring like spanish food and uh, tapas to galway and it was a struggle initially because again like uh, people were saying the irish aren't going to get tapas they want like big plates of food and um we we had to modify our 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 idea of of what we wanted to do slightly but like we we had five great years down on Dominic Street before before we moved to Cava. but uh, I remember at the beginning we because our rent was so high we we had to do so much. I mean we were we were doing so much outside catering. We were we were we were catering for the Car Princess. We were doing communions. Like the place was 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 uh, the kitchen was was operational from seven or eight in the morning till midnight, and and it's just some it's just something we had to do to survive. To pay, uh, to pay that rent, and the irony is, like, even though now you'd say we're in a better position, like we pay twenty five thousand euro in we in, in in where we are now in Cabo, so we pay a hundred grand less rent now, and that's I suppose that's the difference between mm. the tail end oh, of the Celtic yeah. Tiger and and now. That's a huge difference, no? Yeah, no, absolutely. But and and when we signed up to Cava, it wasn't even the most expensive rent in Galway. I mean, and 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 like I remember no. people paying. Like a million euro a year in Dublin, and just like rents had gone absolutely crazy, um, and that's why I think you had so many places, uh, I, on that time around fail because it was just, uh, there was just so much money floating around the economy that when that dried up, then, uh, people stopped going out and, uh, places couldn't pay, uh, couldn't pay their
0: rent, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned there obviously with the with the tapas, and you know people, kind of. Getting used to a new culture of eating in Galway and everything, but uh, in in what way did you feel that you know you you had to change because the people wouldn't appreciate the tapas? Was it you said that the portion sizes or what was in the food or whatever? No, I'd say like what was in the food wasn't wasn't
1: uh, wasn't wasn't too bad, but certainly that style of eating, like where you would order for the table and you would. You would um you would share. I mean, I remember at the very beginning because we did we did an à la carte menu as well at the start, and we would probably have um like seventy percent à la carte and thirty percent tapas when we started. We had we had two menus, and the the difference between say five years later, I'd say we had seventy percent tapas and thirty percent à la carte. And when we reopened Kava, we when we reopened Kava in the new location, we dropped the à la carte, so we only do tapas now. But that took. Six years to get to that point, and we had to make them a little bit bigger. So I think that a lot of Spanish people that come to us say, "Oh, our tapas are more kind of raciones or like larger plates." Because again, uh, we we have, we have we we kind of push and pull at it a little bit with, uh, but the Irish customers sometimes are like they want the, they want their feed, you know, and particularly when you're in Galway, they'll be like uh, they they'd order like tapas to start, and then they'd still want steak. Uh, they were like, oh, "Well, what's for my main course?" And so um we had a few a few uh, funny, funny, funny times where we, or when we run out of like you wouldn't have the steak on the other cart, but you'd have a tapa and people would go, no, no, I want to I want a main course steak. I don't want a small little steak. And so like uh, and it's it's funny now looking back on that because like we've moved beyond it, I think, as, as a food culture. But at the time, I remember like people uh, saying like I'm going to have this one as my starter and these two as my main course. And like, they were still thinking in the, in the, in those terms of, of what, what they're going to have. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think it was actually, uh, I think women enjoyed, um, enjoyed it more. I think the socialization of food and, and going out and talking and drinking and that, I think that, that moment of, of change in, in Irish, in Irish food uh, in the late 2000s, I think because, because, because I suppose for most of us, um, I mean, I, I was into food, so it was different. But most of my friends would go out drinking on the weekend, and food would be a, like completely ancillary thing. It would be like we're going to go to the Chippers later on, or we like it wouldn't be we're going to go for a meal first. I mean, that was just like people did not do that. And I remember actually for my for my um um for my stag party, I wanted to go to Chapter One, and my friends were like, we're not going to a Michelin style restaurant on a stag. Like and I was like, but we're going to like they said we're not wasting money on food, um. And I remember yeah. we went we went to Fallon and burn in the end. That was a compromise, and they were still like that. They were like that was fifty euro. That was an awful waste of money.
0: Yeah, but but that's what's crazy isn't it? Because we have this bread us into us in Irish culture. Food before drinking is soakage. And you know you 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 yeah. you make sure you have a good dinner from your mother or whatever, and then you know you have a feed of pints and twenty vodkas or whatever, and then you know especially in Dominic Street there into John's kebab shop was there or or the pizza place or anything, and food at the end of the night was just like a, a token thing. You get pissed and then you have a big feed of yeah, curry yeah. chips or whatever. So it's a totally different food culture as opposed to Spain and Barcelona and Madrid. You know, even for us here, um, it was amazing. I remember the first time we when we came to live in Madrid and we went into a bar and, you know, we got, um, we got like just a canya and uh, some tapas with it. And we had five canyas each and the bill was 10 euros. And with each canya, we got tapas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was sent to my wife, I said, "This is amazing. I said we can eat for we can eat and drink for ten euros. It's just so amazing." Yeah,
1: I, I think I think I, I I certainly got had that feeling when I was in Spain in, in Barcelona, Madrid, in different places, uh, San Sebastian. Just I, I I just loved that idea. Even even in the south of France, I remember being in the south of France, and um, I think we were in Montpellier. We had a few drinks, and I just remember seeing. All of the food available and even like rolls and sandwiches and those little uh, down when they have the baguettes. Yeah. After. And I was like, why don't we have? I was thinking, why do we only have chippers after <laughs> when you come out at night? And I was like, I was like, wouldn't it be great if you if you after you come out of the pub, you could go to a tapas bar. And I think that was one of the one of the things behind our, our, our thinking. I mean, it's still most people see CAV as a restaurant. I mean, and in, during the summer, we open a bit later, but I would still love to be open till two in the morning serving tapas. But unfortunately, we're, we're still, we're still not there. I mean, maybe in the summer, we would open till 11 or 12 and uh, people would come in for a meat and cheese board and that, but I'd still like to see it develop further. But uh, unfortunately, still by, by between 12 and two, most people are heading to nightclubs and. They, they, I always loved that, uh that thing in Spain where you could just go and sit down in a place between 12 mm. and two and you could, the music wasn't, the music wasn't in your face. You could just sit there, have a drink, eat, have a chat. And it's just that I feel still that we don't, like we don't have as, uh, we don't have that option. I think even in Dublin, I mean, any place after that time, the music is, is, is going to be, is going to be hopping, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and see, this is the thing, you know, Like in Madrid, you can be in a club till six and come out and you they have like these shops here for pizza and they're like square pizza slices and they're two euros each. And I mean, you can go into these at six in the morning and get a slice of pizza or you can go in, you can still get tapas if there's a bar open. And so you have way more choice in that way. Whereas in Ireland, we are subject to, you know, Supermax or whatever, whatever's open at that time at three or three thirty when you come out of the club and Unfortunately, for a lot of restaurants, they don't open because they're trying to avoid the drinking culture, maybe and the yobs and the you know people getting sick in the restaurant. So you're just left with the chippers. So I I think I don't know it it's it's a bit of everything to blame. I think that the when you limit the hours that people can go out, they go a little crazy. And sometimes, like you see here in these European cities, when the bars are open most of the night. It slows things down a lot, you know. Yeah, and I I'm hope there is
1: talk now of reforming and I know they've tried to do it a few times, but there's talk post COVID of trying to realign our our um our bar culture and our nighttime culture with Europe because I think it doesn't make any sense why you're still closing everything at half twelve um or you have an extension because people work so differently now and um I think that it's mm. um uh, it's. It, it, I think that if we were mature enough to do it I think it would work And as you said I think that you wouldn't have this Massive congregation of people Outside whether it's 12 Or, or half, two, three You'd be able to break it up, you know
0: yeah, I I do sometimes like Spanish people say to me, what's the what's the difference kind of between, let's say, the social culture going out in Spain and in Ireland? And I said, well, you know, not to be too cruel about it, but in Ireland, what happens is, you know, you have a you, you drink as much as you can. You know, you, you have a big feed of drink and then there's food at the end where in Spain, you know, they'll. The Spanish people would say, oh, we drink a lot too, but they're eating in between. So that the the effect of the yeah. drink is lessened and they're drinking much less as well because there are smaller portions of drink, you know, like the sizes. And uh, so yeah. in Ireland, it's a bit like get as much as you can before the bar closes.
1: Yeah. And, and that's another thing uh, that I I, I loved about, um, about Spain. It was about having smaller beers because I'm not, a, I, I'm, I'm more of a wine drinker. So I'm not, a big um a big beer drinker but i i i love those little canyas and those small um um those little sm- small beers i think that the, for me it was a little bit more civilized a little bit more civilized than than drinking pints and you couldn't even imagine drinking a pint in a tapas bar that's what i loved about it i was like it would just seem <laughs> completely yeah. In, unnatural
0: yeah yeah now now you see here it's funny because if you especially if you're in Madrid and you're in the Spanish bars, you know, and they have the Canyas, and then you go to, let's say, these kind of theme, theme Irish pubs, you know, which they have no Irish owner at all. And they're just Spanish owners. But, you know, they have pints of Bulmers and pints of yeah. Heineken and English beers and everything. And, I mean, that's a different thing entirely. Then the people are in there for a different feel. But, yeah, it's... They're different different cultures, and you know the way Spanish people are about their food. Food is like God to them. You know, they're they everything is around food, even during during the day and on Sundays and everything. If they go anywhere, they will sit for hours in restaurants with the same food and. You know, I do say to some Spanish people, I say, it's crazy because if you're in London or in Dublin, you go in and have a meal, and you know, within the hour, you're probably gone, and they're waiting to change the table again. Yeah. But here, they'll go into a pizza place and sit for three and a half hours.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I, I do, I do think it's the fact they're they're open for longer, and people are going out at different times, and and and, and again, look, that that that's. They, it it just goes to show that there's plenty more to be to be doing in in Ireland and we have to, there's a lot we we have to learn still and I think that's hopefully the, the future is bright for for Irish food.
0: Yeah, do you find in Cava when you have Spanish patrons do they, you know, is it a different experience serving them because are they expecting to wait longer and to stay longer in the restaurant when they're eating? Not necessarily. I mean, we have a lot
1: of tourists in Cava as well and um, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, most of the time they give out about the price of things and like you're like, I, I, I'm a great uh, believer in transparency and I'll go, I can sit down and tell you why you can get your bottle of cava in Spain for a euro and it's 30 euro in Ireland. And if you want to do the economics of it, I'll absolutely sit down and tell you. Um, but it's uh, most of the time it's they're, they're happy. I know a lot of Irish people have said we've ruined their idea of Spanish food because I think they had a kind of great, uh, this idea where they they went to Malaga in some awful tapas bar and they thought this was great and then they came to Cava and went, Oh my god, this is this is really good. So I think we opened up a lot of Irish people to 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 Spanish food, which which is great. I mean and before we opened, I mean our idea was was that like we wanted to create um uh the, a Spanish place outside uh outside Spain. I wasn't I wasn't looking to replicate anything inside Spain. So we did travel to London and we travelled to New York and went to some tapas bars there we, we 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 did our research and i was like what does a tapas bar look like outside outside spain and um uh, for me there's some great ones there's some great ones in um in new york as well so i mean that that was important for us that that um that research um so and we still we still go to spain every year um i mean we again we didn't go last year but we the last time we went down to seville and um um, down to Heres the the Sherry Triangle, and, that. and so we still try and go once a year to uh just to do a little bit of um a little bit of a little bit of research.
0: Okay, brilliant. And and so with with the other restaurants like Anyar, it, it, that's how we pronounce it. Anyar, isn't it, or Anyar? Oh, Anyar. Anyar. Sorry, sorry, Anyar. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. so with Anyar, then that's obviously a different kind of food because it's more. It, it would be not, I don't want to say it's more Irish, but there's more kind of homegrown food, isn't it? Isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Anir was very much inspired by the Nordic food revolution, which, like, I mean, if you, the, the the two, for me, the two main food revolutions of the last 10 years or so have happened. One has happened in Spain with, say, El Bulli and uh, the molecular gastronomy, and, and the other one happened with uh, um, in the, in Copenhagen with this kind of return to the land and to foraging and seaweed and, and all this. And so, like, when we, when we opened an ear, we were very much inspired by, by, by that side of things. And I mean, I love so many different types of food. Like, I, 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 I'd never tie myself to, to one particular, one particular style of, of food. And for me, I just love exploring, uh, using food to explore, explore different, um, different things. So we, we opened an ear, I think in 2011. Yeah. near was opened 10 years this July. Wow. And, um, yeah, like our intention again was just to open a restaurant. It was never our intention was never to, I suppose, to to win a Michelin star or to become, I suppose, internationally recognised. But I, that's what happened, and um, we've uh, we've been kind of uh, dealing with that, um, uh, dealing with that ever since. And like, so, like it, it, there's good and bad in the sense that, I mean, there's a lot of responsibility winning a Michelin star, and there's a lot of pressure, and then there's keeping it and the staff changes and like you, you mature in that process. But uh, certainly, the first the first five years or so uh, were were very difficult. And we want to we want to start in our second year, uh, our second year of being open. So it was uh it was hard um to 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 maintain it because again a lot of I mean, a lot of our guests are international and they're coming for a specific experience. Um, and on the downside of that, like uh like without that's one of the reasons why we didn't open in here this year is that. I, I, it would be hard to, uh, see a near surviving if it wasn't um uh, a tourist town, you know, because we have so many Americans. I mean, some nights in anear we we'd be dealing with a hundred percent Americans, you know, like uh we only have twenty four seats, uh, so everyone would be American, and I would say on average of the, um, if you were to do a percentage, it was sixty or seventy percent of our guests might be from America, maybe twenty from Europe. Ten from uh from from the UK and of the ten or so that are left from Ireland, if I've done my maths right, I would say two to three percent will be from Galway uh in terms of our guests, and that's the opposite in Cava. Like Cava is full of Galwegians, and I think it's just that that's what it's what Galway uh, it's what Galway wants, you know. And so it is it is hard running uh, a fine dining restaurant in Galway for Galway people and it's not that that that's not to take away from uh, from anything it's just that I think Galway as a town it has a very relaxed air the the arts the culture and it's just it, it 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 breeds informality and if you look at the the kind of busier bu- the busiest restaurants the busiest and best restaurants and if you look at say this Cava and Orbia and Kai and they're all like very informal restaurants with very good ethics and philosophy and uh I that that's not to say an ear doesn't have that or or the other Mission Star restaurant loam. It's just that they are more tailored experiences that suit the tourist, you know, and, and uh you I, I think you'll see all over the world um uh a lot of mission star restaurants may not open. Some have already not opened. I mean the Ledbury in London and a lot of two stars are are gone because particularly the two and three stars survive on tourism like international tourism is is what keeps the three michelin star restaurant going it is not the local population and yeah. so it's it, it is going it is going to be hard
0: yeah and you know uh, somebody said something to me actually i think it was last year there's a I don't know the name but you probably know the name now. there's a, there's a michelin star restaurant in barcelona and they only the chef they only open for three months every year. Do you know the name of that one? Um, I don't know.
1: I don't know that one specifically. I know, like, before in the past, like uh, the, the El Bully, the f- a very famous one, would would open. They were outside. They were in Girona, I think. But they would open for th- for six months, and uh and eventually they 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 closed, and they the 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 two brothers. Um, and I I know one of them, Albert. Uh, he has a couple of tapas bars in, um, high end tapas bars in Barcelona now, but they are, they have brought a lot more fun and, uh, humor and informality. And they're, and they're a one, they're a one star restaurant. And so it's, it's hard. I and mean, with one star, you, you have a lot more room to, to maneuver, you know, when you get into two and three stars, it becomes very much about the, the experience of, of eating and the kind of, what surrounds that experience whereas one Michelin star i think you you can you can get with a lot of a lot of a lot of good cooking and a lot of passion you don't need to have very very fancy chairs or tables or but i just feel that for two and three star you you really need to uh to
0: to you need you need greater investment with your restaurant do you, when, do you feel you know, when people use the term "surf and turf" nowadays, because it's become more common. You know, with the the land and the sea. Would you describe your restaurant as that type of restaurant? Because it's using natural resources from both.
1: Yeah, we probably we have a lot of a lot of um, seafood in and ear, and a lot of stuff from from and even from the land in terms of like uh, vegetables and that. Of course, like we 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 look at both. I I think the sea is is an under under utilized resource in Ireland, particularly in terms of fish and shellfish. And that's probably where I fell in love with fish and shellfish was probably Spain. Uh, because they do it so well and, and that's what attracted me back back to it. I mean, lovely mussels and hake and oysters and uh octopus and all sorts of things that I think that are quite common. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that's fished off Irish waters probably ends up in Spain anyway. Because oh, for the, sure. the, yeah. the 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 market is there and uh it's still we still have some way to go, I think, in in appreciating fish more in Ireland, I mean, it's certainly changed. I didn't grow up eating eating shellfish. We used to have like fish once a week on Fridays because of of, of religious and fast reasons and that. But like, there was no celebration of fish, you know. And no. I think that's we we do have that now. Uh but still, there's still a way to go in in terms of if you if you have fish and meat on a menu, you will you will more than likely sell more meat than, than fish. It could be 70, 30. And, and we actually don't have them. We only, of the 16 courses we have in an ear, we might have two or three that are meat and the, the rest are fish and vegetables. So I remember someone saying your, your, your menu should come with a warning that it doesn't have enough meat on it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, we're by the sea. And I was like, we do have a beef dish and we have a pork dish, but like, of course, there's just so much seafood, um, that, yeah. It's, it's, it's an awful shame not to use it. Um, and, uh, and again, you want to try and, and highlight it. So it's uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's an interesting thing.
0: Yeah. That, that's true. I mean, you have to use the resources as, as you have them. Let's speak a little bit about the, your symposium, the food on the edge. Um, obviously it's very difficult this year with what's happening, but you, you started that a few, good few years ago. And how is that going now? I mean, is it something that has grown and grown?
1: Yeah, again, it's it's a, I suppose it's a little bit like a near. It's appreciated a lot more outside Ireland than it is inside Ireland. But may, maybe that's like uh, that's a it's a it's a, that's our u two moment. Um, uh, it, it's it's uh, <laughs> or the cranberries, or the cranberries. Yeah, we started in twenty fifteen, and we we just invited these um, major chefs and industry players, and a, a lot of a lot of people uh, were saying oh, God, they won't come to Galway. There's nothing in Galway, and we had it in a tent up in Air Square, and yeah, it had a great uh, feel of it. And we we did it we did it for five years. We didn't do it last year because of COVID nineteen. We just brought out an ebook on responses to to COVID. We asked all of the past participants and some others for their response to uh, to lockdown all over the world. So we got emails from them all, and we we published it in a. It's a free ebook, so. Anyone can download it from, uh, for a website. You just sign up for, for our newsletter and you get it with it, with the newsletter. Um, and this year we're hoping again to, to do it in, uh, in October. Again, it's, it's, it's all very provisional. Normally food in the edge would take a year to organize. Like we'd normally start in November for the following October. And this year we're going to start in June, maybe. So we're probably looking at a one day event. We might put it on in Dublin just for, just to see to do something different because we just don't have the time or the resources again our cash flow has been wiped out because again we would rely on sponsorship as well but uh, all of our sponsors are are closed a lot of them are are not open and and that so it it is going to be a tough year but hopefully we will get something done and it like the, the whole purpose of it has been to to bring uh like international uh international people to Ireland to talk about food to inspire us to to get us to to do a little bit more with with our own food and our own our own produce and then uh the other side of that is to is to to get irish people to 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 meet these these chefs but the the, the other one is, as well is to, is to get these chefs over to ireland and realize that we have like amazing produce that we that we probably don't appreciate enough ourselves yeah yeah like we set up food in the edge because i had travelled to, to places to similar symposiums and they were talking about their own food, and I was like, "God, we have this in Ireland." I was, we have really good fish and really good pork and really good beef and vegetables and like suppliers and juicers. I was like, "Why aren't we celebrating them?" So, like, when they when they when the chefs come over, they recognise that and they go, "Wow!" And it's kind of like we just need to believe a little bit more in ourselves, and so it's it's part of it of a general movement in in Irish food, and hopefully, uh, it will continue to be so. Like so. We were going to try and do, do a, a, a scaled down version this year. And, uh, just to keep the momentum going, because again, to, to, to miss it for two years, as you know yourself, like every year you don't do it, the it's harder to get back because the event, the event costs 300, the event costs 300,000 to put on. Um, so it's a, uh, it's, 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 um, and 200 of that is raised by, by sponsorship and 100, 100 grand is brought in by tickets. So and the tickets are not cheap; they're like three, three hundred quid or something like that. So it's it is it is something that I feel, I feel it's underappreciated. And again, I think it's that sometimes we don't play the long game in Ireland. I I say to younger chefs, they go, I sure like it's it's two hundred fifty euro. I couldn't afford that. And I say like it's a euro a day, and and like it's 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 investment. And I think it's when you look at it, of course, two hundred fifty euro looks like a lot of money. But if I say there is fifty international speakers here talking for two days. We have an artisan village. You can go there, listen, meet them, make connections, and a lot of people have, and then they go and work in these places in England or Spain or France or Denmark, and it's like a it's like a think tank for two days. And I said, like three hundred fifty euros is is very cheap for me for that in relation to what you'd pay for outside uh, Ireland for for similar symposiums. But again, it's just about I think us trying uh, us maturing as a, as a country and getting to realise the value. Of
0: Of that can I ask you you know uh, do you feel like in around Europe there's a little bit of snobbery from like you know some of the the French and Spanish um people towards Irish uh, food, because I know obviously living in Spain here sometimes people would say to me in a sarcastic way, "What about Irish food and so they kind of look at it here, I think a little bit like there's not much to offer. You know, like the, that we, because in the sense that we have a staple diet of, you know, of, of potatoes and cabbage and bacon and so on. So do you, do you find that prejudice is kind of there? Is that hard to change? Like it's, it's changing gradually. And like
1: the, I, I think the likes of Spain and France and, and Italy and, uh, and, and, uh, and England to, to, to a latter degree. I mean, I think their food culture is more advanced because in the, I suppose, in the emerging years of food culture say in in the nineteenth century they were they were nation states and they were they were powerful nation states and we were colonized by England and we had a famine so it's like it's we i mean we all of Europe has the same peasant tradition and so it, and and when you look to some of the the greatest spanish dishes, i mean a lot of them like the tortilla or a lot of them include potato and so and a lot of the, the grandmothers cookings is very similar to Irish grandmother's cooking. And like the, so there is a similarity. And I mean, that's what I, when I wrote the, the Irish cookbook, which I think is here behind me. Uh, yeah.
0: A, I, I was going to ask you about that next, actually. That's interesting. That, the like, cookbook. That, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that has 480 recipes. So Annie Spaniard, ever says, Annie, she just hit them with that. Um, I mean, I don't mean, I'm going to pull that out of my oh, arsenal. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And go, there you go. Uh, now, I know the, and I think I, I we, I submitted a thousand recipes to, to, to that. And with, I mean, the, we could only fit 450 in and I'm writing a sequel on, on fish. And there is a lot of untapped, um, resource, resources there. And there's a lot of, I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably our own, uh, I suppose it's our own myopia for, for not seeing that. I think when we try and qualify Irishness, we're looking at some sort of, Mythical sense of Ireland, uh, like whether it's Celtic Ireland or Ireland separated from, from Europe in the 20th century. And really when you look back into Irish food and uh, through the, through the different generations or, or centuries, like Ireland as an island is always traded with, with, uh, European countries and with uh, even further afield. So there are many, many things in Ireland, uh, in Irish food. That we would not acknowledge, like even saffron, there, saffron has been in Ireland since the 17th century. And like, that's the main ingredient of paella. And so when I, when I, I have a, a, mu, a muscle, a mussel and saffron dish, I think in the cookbook that actually, I think comes from the 19th century. Like, so there's a lot there that you can talk about in an expanded way. And I think it's just that we didn't have that belief in ourselves. And also I think that we threw the baby out with the bathwater when we didn't want the kind of Anglo Irish element. In our cooking. And that was there for 300 years. And there's a lot there uh, as well that like pies and so many different things uh, that I tried to, to cover. So we need to take a greater, more expanded view of Irish food. And you could do the same to Spain. If you said to Spain, okay, leave out the Arab influence, like their, their, their food would be decimated. Like if you said, oh, yeah, if you're, if you're really Spanish, I mean, what does that mean? Really Spanish. But if you take out the Moorish influence, like all of the dried fruit, the nuts, like the the, the rice as well, so much, so I I think that the what was this when the Spanish and French and Italians ask, oh, what about Irish food? Like they 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 imagine their own food to be. To be some sort of singular thing. And it's not a singular thing. It is, it is, it is a multiplicity. Yeah. But I, I think that, and that's something I realized. Uh, I realized as well that when I started writing the book, I was thinking about like Irishness as, as, as a singular thing. And I was like, Oh, Irish recipes. And as I went into it, I found that there was so much more in this country than just Irishness. And if you look back, the different waves of, of migration, um like you have the the vikings and the normans and, and and each each different wave brought about new ingredients and new food and that's still happening you have more japanese restaurants opening in uh, in ireland now and even if you want, even the, the the most recent i think revolution in in food in spain they're that kind of on the molecular side a lot of that was influenced i think by japan and by the way they look at fish um and i i think that we we I think it's often we just fail to 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 recognise the the external the external influence.
0: I I think myself, you know, in in Spain here, I do say to people, you know, like Spanish food is great. I, some of it I don't like, and I think I prefer Italian cooking myself. But sometimes, with. Um, with spanish food you can see dishes and you say oh but that's kind of like quiche or that's like so a lot of dishes are shared amongst european countries but given different names and then they kind of claim them as their own but like you said earlier cocido in spain is basically like irish stew you know it's very similar absolutely and i think i think the
1: the exotic element in it is like whether you have like uh, paprika or whatever like i think that that's what i mean for us as a northern european nation and we feel that our food is a bit gray or or beige it's like i think that that's why we feel that the italians and the french and the spanish have a greater food culture because they have more colorful ingredients and like lemons and oranges and almonds and all these things that 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 if you take them out of the food i mean we have very similar stuff in uh in uh, in Ireland, and even like the fact that a paella and a risotto are, are come from very similar traditions, and when they argue about them, you'd swear they were like from different planets, and uh, and they get very upset about them.
0: But but even even the paella, when when it's um, when you're in Madrid and you ask, you know, which is the best paella, and they say, oh well, Madrid, you know, Madrilenos, and but like the Valencia paella is amazing too, and it has different ingredients, so. You know, it's a very much a tribal thing where each kind of claims oh, ours is better than theirs and so on. But, you know, you have to be very open minded and say, oh, well, I like this one more because it's seafood or that one more because it's rabbit and so on. Yeah, but it's something that
1: we can learn because like when we had a uh, when we first opened Cabo, we had quite a few Spanish chefs in the kitchen. And I loved the way they fought amongst each other about what was the real tortilla and what was the real paella. And even recently. The, the Madrid chef, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, uh, who, who runs Diverso. It's a, the guy with the makeup, uh, is a three-star chef, but he put up a, a Madrid paella and my, my Galician friend sent it to me. And he said the amount of comments underneath it going, that's not real. Paella's from Valencia. And even now still there was Spanish people arguing saying that's not real. It's paella's really from Valencia. And it's the same with pizza and, and, and Napoli, uh, or, or Naples. So. It, 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 like it, it's a fiction, and it's, 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 it's a great fiction because it, it, it creates a great tradition. But at the same time, you need to be able to see through it and go, look, it is a fiction that has been created, and we need to, we need to be mindful of that, um, because um, it's uh you do like the last thing you want is go to is go to war over paella or tortilla, um, but uh, like the Spanish will do that, and, and that's maybe unfortunate that the the Irish don't go to war over lamb stew and.
0: What uh, what the what the real lamb stew is? And, and you know, it's funny there because obviously, just going back to a simple dish like pizza. Um, now, I mean, in New York, you can get some amazing pizza for, for years, and probably, and that's because there's a huge Italian I- influence in there as well. So maybe between New York and Italy, they're like, who has the better pizza now?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I would say also that um, that most of our understanding. Of, um, of Italian food comes out of, comes out of New York, uh, not, not Italy. And that's why even when, when Italians come here and they go, oh, that's not the real carbonara, that's not the real Bolognese. I mean, we, we're getting it third hand because it's gone through America and come over to us. And, and, and the Italians have to realize that what well, their dish, their dish, their dish came out of, um, peasant traditions that were fluid. And maybe they became codified in the nineteenth or twentieth century, but they have to represent the. They have to, I suppose, acknowledge that the the fluidity of that. I remember there's. I, I'm sure you know the sauce romesco. It's it's served with tortilla. It's, yeah, it's yeah a, I've heard of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a hazel and almond uh, salsa. And they have, the funny thing is that there's so many different versions of it. I've I've never had it the same in one place in Spain. So we have romesco with our tortilla. And a Spanish guy was telling me, this isn't the real Romesco. And I was like, what do you mean it's not the real Romesco? And he was like, the real Romesco has X, Y, and Z. And then I pulled up, and this is, um, there's a book by a Spanish uh travel writer called 37 Romescos. And he traveled around Spain collecting different Romesco wow. recipes. Because the tradition comes from fishermen meeting together and eating fish with a sauce. And really the sauce came about with what people, what they had to hand. And not they didn't. It wasn't invented in the kitchen. So um, and and the, the funny thing was he said was well that's not true. It's in a book,
0: and it's just like what are you talking about? It's like the, the... it's funny how like you don't realize the small things in food traditions, or even the way people eat food. And me and my wife were watching a movie the other night, and there was a scene where there was like. Um, the 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 it was like someone had died and they were they they were looking at the the murder suspect and whatever and there was a slice of pizza left in the suspect's apartment and he said i want you to identify the teeth marks and see if they match the victim or whatever and the the coroner looked at it and she said well whoever ate this pizza is from the east coast and he said what do you mean she said because in the west coast they don't fold their pizza when they eat it so on the yeah, East Coast, yeah, they yeah, yeah. fold the pizza and they eat it as a double slice. And I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. There are small little details yeah. of how people eat food.
1: No, no, that, they're, 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 it's, it's interesting in that respect, um, I think. Uh, and sometimes movies de- definitely show you these in, in more detail. I remember actually watching some some historical drama recently, and I was fascinated how they made the pies. And 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 my friend was like, "Would you like?" There was nothing to do with the film. They were like, "Would you fucking move on? Stop pausing it." And I was like, "I was like, it was a Mike Lee film on. It was a war film." And I was like, "Look at look at the the pie." And I was like, "This is with this kind of pestle thing." And they were like, "Would you shut up and listen to the movie?" But so I I love those little details sometimes. In uh, you're getting caught up in the details. Yeah, well, particularly around food and the way restaurants look at that so it's uh yeah it's, it's definitely uh it's definitely interesting but I,
0: you i i noticed that you have this you mentioned it earlier the online course you know you're doing for 10 weeks or something how is how is that is that is that getting good feedback yeah
1: yeah like i mean up to this point we've just been doing private classes uh like one-on-one um and i think up to one to four and it was just that it was just we were doing them just to to I mean just to pay the rent and kind of keep us going when we were in and out of lockdown and i suppose this time around knowing that we're probably not going to be open till june i was thinking we need to do something more long term that that is going to be like a 10 week class also all of the cooking classes that we're supposed to have on in house are usually on between uh, november and march when we're closed when the restaurant is closed and we're going to miss all of them we have a lot of vouchers outstanding and and we have no premises to put on a class and so a lot of people who have vouchers now can't do a class till October, November. And so I was thinking, how do we, how do we uh, try to create something? So, so we've we've we created this te- online class, uh, and it it starts in in March, and hopefully we can have up to a hundred people attend it. And that's the beauty of of of, uh, of of Zoom and online that you can you can reach a lot of more people. I mean, a lot of the classes that we've done up to this date. Uh, have been with Americans and that like it's great. I mean, they contact us, they want a class of one on one. We do five or six recipes, they buy the ingredients and we've done a few classes now with, uh, with the same person two or three times. And it's, it's nice. You meet, you meet different people and you, you feel by the end of the three hours that you've been, uh, you've been cooking together, you know. And so it, it is, it is one, I suppose, positive takeaway from this, this pandemic is that we, we, I suppose we forget that we have technology on our side, you know. And the the pandemics of the of the past whether it was the Asian flu in the late sixties or early seventies or the Spanish flu I mean there was no uh, alternative I mean to 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 just being... sit you couldn't work from home and you couldn't just sit at home and, and watch watch whatever no but it's one of, you know
0: and, and like my my wife bakes cakes and stuff you know and she um she was going to start like a a, a Kind of a, a school for teaching children about baking cakes, you know? And, but like, she didn't do it, obviously. And then the COVID came in and she put it in the long finger. But now, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of, okay, maybe do it virtually or whatever, because now you have to look at other avenues because you don't just kill the dream. You just have to find another way to do it, no? No, absolutely.
1: And like, there's no more than doing the ebook with Food on the Edge. Like, it was like, how can we do something? to keep the to keep the 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 momentum going but without having a massive without spending a lot of money and without spending without having a lot of resources and doing putting together an ebook like it took three of us to do it we had to like find out how to make an ebook and a lot of and we wouldn't have done that if we had had the symposium so there there, there are there like you have to adapt unfortunately you can't just sit down and and wait for it wait for it to um wait for it to pass particularly if you're in an area of society that has been closed. And, um, and I think that's like hospitality or, or, uh, uh, teachers, lecturers. I mean, a lot of them are to are, have to work remotely now and, um, they, they probably won't see their students at all, particularly the university probably won't see their students at all this year because they, they thought they'd be back in January and now they might be back in March, but then the, 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 it'll be over by then. And so it's, uh, it's, it is difficult for, I think for, for everyone, but I, I think it's trying to see, um, the 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 other side of it, and when you teach online as well, you can actually teach. We we did a class with one person in Dublin and one person in Copenhagen. They knew each other, but like you couldn't have done that in the past. You wouldn't even have thought of doing it. And so no. I was in Galway, one person was in Copenhagen, and one person was in Dublin, and we had a class with three of us, and we talked and we talked and was like, oh, what's going on with you, and what are you doing there, and like that that would have never even thought. Uh, we would have never. So that there is there is a silver lining in that respect to uh to 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 working online and being able to being able to i think attend conferences now uh, remotely whereas i think in the past it might have been looked down upon if you said well i can't go to some conference in new york or whatever i'm just going to log in on zoom like now, that's all anyone can do. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's actually, it's actually bringing more people to it. And it's probably better for the planet in, in, in the long run that we're not, yeah. Um, not
0: traveling I, I, so I, much. I'm going to finish up with you in a minute, but I want to ask you about your art because. You know, I've been watching there, and you know, you're doing your your paintings, and some some of them really nice. And and um, actually, it's funny because this Friday, one of my guests on the show is Jim McKee, the singer songwriter. And Jim is a brilliant artist, and you know, he talks about his art and everything. So it's really interesting how he he said he used to do art when he was young, and then he got more into it and everything. For you, has art is art something that you've kind of been doing more now because of the lockdown you've had more time or what's kind of pushed you into it again
1: yeah probably that i mean again it's another another good aspect of it like i mean i i've always been interested in the arts and i think cooking is one of them and i did art history i've I've always liked writing um uh, whether it's um fiction or uh, plays or that I, i i as a pastime and so like i think that uh the pandemic just kind of created the space for that because buying canvas and buying paint and like it's, it's, it's something that you need time to do. And, and I suppose it's something that I, I probably wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have started again or got back into, um, in, 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 in the way that I have. And it's nice. I mean, I've sold a few paintings and it's, 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 it's nice to just be able to produce. I'm doing a painting for a guy in Canada at the moment. Um, and again, that's the beauty of the internet as well that, that, it's, it's something that you're doing for yourself, but at the same time, you, you can post them. People can have a look at them. You, you end up meeting people online who have similar interests. I mean, photography is something I love as well. I love black and white photography and uh, it's something that's nice. You can go out and you can take pictures. And I probably had, I probably hadn't, other than taking pictures on my phone, I had stopped and I have so many cameras that I don't use anymore that I, everything had just been regulated to taking pictures on my phone. And it's nice to be able to to get back out and just to take some pictures and post them online and you meet other photographers who are also into black and white pictures and it's it's
0: nice to have that, that kind of uh community. I, I have to I have to make a comment on this because I just discovered by accident one day when you put up one of your paintings, you had a troll. <laughs> you had a guy on who said, That's not art, JP. Oh stop. I, I don't I can't remember his name You don't have oh, to yeah. say his name. But the thing is I When I saw it, I thought to myself, wow, there's always somebody because, you know, this is the thing, appreciation of anything, you know, I can eat a dish and say it's horrible and you can say I love it and you can look at art and think it's beautiful and I think that's just canvas and paint thrown at it. But the thing is, like, look at Jackson Pollock and everything, art and everything is in the eye of the beholder, beauty, everything, so... It's crazy, isn't it? Because, you know, someone can look at this and say, that's not art, but what's art? Not What is art?
1: I know. And, and the same, you could say the same about food. And when people go into an ear and we said them 16 little courses and they go, that's not food. I mean, what I want is a steak and chips. Yeah. And, I, and I think what they, I think what we mean by that is that I think it's that uh, like there's, I mean, art is so subjective and at the same time it's so historical as well. And we have to realize that um, I mean, any type of art, and I think I said this to, to, to the guy on, on, uh, on, um, on Facebook. Cause I, I mean, they, they actually, I love when other, other conversations start after someone says something. I didn't even get involved cause I was like, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. I mean, I taught art for, for nearly 15 years and the last thing I'd engage with in anything is like, what is, the what is art question? I'd be like, go away from me. um I'd be like, the, the more interesting question for me is like, is 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 what art was produced when, and it, whether it's Jackson Pollock or or Michelangelo, and it's like, well, why did they paint that way then? And I think that they're more interesting questions. Of course, you can have the whole philosophical: is it art or is it just paint? And like the, and I think the Spanish, the Spanish food, particularly at the very highest level, is is so artistic. Sometimes I would still say, Do you know what? Like I'm not, I, I I know what they're doing. I can see that it tastes good, but I think for me, sometimes it becomes too intellectual and, and the food is, 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 almost like a concept and you look at it and you go, God, you know, I know what they're trying to do, but I want just something with a bit more love and whether that's a bit of a tortilla or a bit of, um, um, a bit of fish. And I think it just depends on your mood. I mean, art and food are very psychological. As with music, I'd see you've got your guitars and your, your piano uh, behind you. And I, I, I started learning piano on my 40th birthday. I bought myself a, a keyboard and I said, I always wanted to learn how to play piano and I never got the chance growing up. And so I'm, 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 I'm using this app to teach myself and I'm two years in now. And I think I'm at the state, I think I'm at the stage of it said you are now, you are now playing piano six months. And I was like, no, I'm playing piano two years. But that, so I,
0: <laughs> it's like a time I'm, lapse. I, I, I'm a bit, yeah, yeah,
1: I'm, I'm a bit behind on my lessons, but I, I love the fact that you can do that now. Uh, Whereas, like, I have this app called Simply Piano and it's like, it's, it's, it's an app. It's fantastic because it just, you follow it and it teaches you and it, it, it moves you on. It, it scores you and yet you have to use it. And in the past, you would only been able to do that with going to, to a teacher. And yes. I, I like the way you, I'm not, it's not going to replace the teacher, but I love the way that it gives you a few more, a little bit more opportunity for, for people to learn and, 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 and also for, 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 I mean, I've always loved, uh, Playing guitar and that, and I've loved music. I knew I always would have always wanted to have more of a background, but I joined a band, the the marching band in Minute and they put me on recorder for two years. And I I wanted to play the saxophone, and I was like, I, in the end, I knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to break me down with this bloody recorder, and saying, well, if you can learn how to play that now, you can play the saxophone. And I didn't make it. I, you know, I just got sick yeah, of yeah. playing the recorder, and I I fell out. But I it's maybe when I'm fifty, I'll learn how to play the saxophone. But uh, it was always something I I, I, fancied, uh, well, I fancied. Well, I mean,
0: myself doing. you know, like that's the thing, isn't it? You know, who's to say what's good or bad? I mean, and and the point is that you know when we when you you know when people post something on Facebook, oh, this is what I've done, whether it's written a song or I've put made this art piece or whatever. I mean, that's that's fine, but you know that we need to be more encouraging because you you can look at it and say that's rubbish, but you don't have to post a comment because. Sometimes things are better left unsaid and let the person kind of dwell in their own happiness of what they're doing, isn't it? Because yeah, that's the whole point of them being happy.
1: I think so. And I think Annie, Annie, I think we,
0: we need to appreciate the creative
1: arts much more from from music to food to 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 to, to painting or, or, or that and <clears throat> and let people enjoy themselves. I'm not trying to be a professional artist. I mean, what, whatever that might be like. And, and I think people that cook at home and post their pictures, they're not trying to be professional chefs, and no. I, I think we need to encourage no. people and go, look, that's really, r- really, uh, really good. I, I, the same sometimes when I post a song or two. I mean, I love Tom Waits, and I play it, and they go, "Geez, you're really shit on guitar," and I just laugh. I just laugh. <laughs> it, I just laugh it off. <laughs> I just laugh it off and go, Do "You know what? Uh, I, I wasn't trying to be a professional musician. i was just playing guitar, and uh, but like, it, it, I, just it, for fun. Unfortunately, there are always there are always people that, that, uh, and I, I think what's happening is they're bringing their own insecurities. I mean, I, I would never say, yeah, exactly. I, would, I would never say to someone like, uh, I, I am a chef, like in the sense that, cause I don't see myself as a singular thing. I just see myself as I cook, I have restaurants, but people, when people look at you, you, go, Oh, you're JP McMahon, the chef. And I go, no, I like painting as well. And I like writing. And I think we box people off hmm. too much. I'm JP McMahon. Yeah, and <laughs> we, we box people off too much. And I think that we need to allow people uh, to, to, to go into whatever they want and go, look, yeah, I like painting or I like playing guitar in in my, in my, in my as a pastime. And I might post it because I'm actually posting it to, to friends. But unfortunately, anyone can see everything now and you get some lunatic falling in going, yeah, you're 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 not that good. And I was just like, well, that's good for you. I mean, I mean, you, you, you post whatever you want. And yeah, I think it's just our own insecurity or their own insecurities. And I think we need to be a little more open.
0: You have to be able to laugh at yourself, you know. And the thing yeah. is that if you can laugh at yourself and people post them kind of comments, well, then you can just laugh at them because you're like, look, I'm not out to achieve anything here. It's just a bit of fun. I'm just showing you another side to me. So if you don't yeah. like it, turn the page. You know, that's it yeah and also i I think it's important that we that that
1: that's that that social media isn't some sort of um ideal space i think we need to put up our failures and our i I mean i often do it when i'm cooking and something doesn't work out i mean we need to be able to post our moments when when things don't work and and say like this is real life i mean because if you look at people's if you looked at my instagram you'd, you'd swear i was having the best pandemic of my life uh but like it's uh I, as I said to someone re- recently, like I mean, that's probably zero point five percent of my day is is what gets posted on Instagram, and, and we need to yeah. be we need to be careful not to look at people uh, look look at people's lives through that and all the the arguments you have with the kids over homeschooling and the the sweats and everything uh, everything uh, of, yeah, of trying yeah. of trying to do it. So it's uh, I mean, we're all fallible, and we're all just trying to get on. We're all you know? fallible.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, uh, I'm my last question for you, as I think, you know, I've enjoyed the interview. It's been brilliant. Uh, what's your what's your kind of aspirations this year? What what do you see yourself doing or do you think that it's possible to do much this year? What do you what's your objectives? No, I think you could always do more. I think I have that
1: I have that strange Irish illness where I feel like I'm doing nothing all the time. And that's why I do lots of things, because I, I don't register what I've done. And I just go, oh, God, I need to do something else. Because uh, sometimes my friends say, would you just stop producing things for a moment? You're making everyone else feel bad. And I go, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Um like I'm working on this fish book and I'd like to, I, I'm trying to find a publisher for it. So for me, that's one thing. I'd love to get the restaurants reopen and uh, and to, to start back again and uh, to bring, we have 50 staff all furloughed at the moment. I'd love, love to get them all back and, and, and to get something going. So, I mean, they're, they're probably the main two two objectives. For uh for this year and possibly we try to try and get some type of food in the edge just for a day maybe bring European chefs over we probably won't be able to bring chefs from 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 afar this year uh because of quarantine and all that but look we'll see we'll see how it goes and uh, but I think there's plenty for doing and I think we just need to be able to uh to 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 take a bit of time out and to see what we can achieve and I think the the fact even that we're talking and you're in Madrid I think you know that's it's fantastic. It's, it's the, the beauty of technology.
0: It's great. Listen, it's been a pleasure to.
1: Yeah, sorry, go on. No, at the beginning of the interview, I thought you were in Galway and I was like, why is he asking me what the weather like? I was like, like, I mean, like, I, cause I, I don't know what, maybe it's the background or your accent. I just got convinced. I was like, he must be, he must, he must be over in Tume. Why is he asking me if the weather any better in Galway? Uh, so. Yeah, yeah,
0: that, that's it. it it's, Chum, it's Tume, it's Tume via Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, now, listen, it's, been, it's great talking. It's brilliant. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, and it's very interesting. And, you know, as I said, there's there's so much more we can talk about. Another time, maybe. We'll bring you on another time. But I, I want to thank you for coming on. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, well done on, on all your restaurants and well done on retaining the Michelin star again. And um, good luck with your art and your music and everything else and your new fish cookbook. Uh, And I hope the symposium goes well for you this year. And really, we just wish you the best this year. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Simon. Okay, thank you very much, J.P. McMahon, for coming on the show. We really enjoyed that. It was an interesting chat. And we hope to have you on again sometime in the future. And best of luck with everything. Um, Moving on to next week's guest, a we're going to have Andrea Kelly. So Andrea Kelly is an award-winning actress. She has appeared in on stage in theatre. She has been on the TV and she has done lots of drama workshops. And we're going to talk to her about her life so far and everything she has done and she's doing. And that should be a very interesting chat. So join us for that also. So take care of yourself, guys, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.